This is episode 42 with 228 marathoner, coach, author, and publisher of The Morning Shakeout, Mr. Mario Fraioli. Welcome back to the show, guys. I'm Jason, and today I'm answering your running questions with my friend and former collegiate cross-country competitor, Mario Fraioli. You might recognize Mario as my guest from episode four of the podcast, where we talked a lot about online coaching, the benefits, its limitations, and the nuances of hiring a virtual coach. Mario is someone that I love talking with because he has a different background than I do, and he often has new perspectives on running. He was formerly a senior editor at Competitor Magazine. He's author of the book, The Official Rock and Roll Guide to Marathon and Half Marathon Training. And he coached the 2012 Costa Rican Men's Olympic Marathon team. And today, he's publisher of The Morning Shakeout, which is a weekly newsletter for running nerds. So if that's your thing, definitely check it out at themorningshakeout.com. All right, I'm really excited about this, Mario really knows his stuff and gave a ton of value to this episode. But before we dive into our Q&A, let me thank our sponsor, the Ankle Foot Maximizer. This is a strength tool for the feet and lower legs, and I've found it to be very helpful at strengthening hard-to-strengthen areas, like the arch, the small intrinsic muscles in the foot, and the lower leg musculature. So if you struggle with lower leg injuries, you know, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendinopathy, shin splints, or maybe even posterior tibial tendinitis, definitely check them out. Go to afxonline.com, and there is a hyphen in between AFX and the word online. Use code STRENGTHRUN to get 10% off your order at afxonline.com. And that code STRENGTHRUN, it's all caps and there's no space, and that will get you 10% off of the AFX strength tool. Okay, in store for you today are not so common, wacky, and fun questions that I have crowdsourced from our social media communities. If you want to get your questions answered on the podcast, just hit me up on Twitter. My handle is JasonFitz1, or just search Facebook for Strength Running, and you'll find us there as well. All right, everyone, let's get started. All right, how have you been, man? I've been good. I've been good. Coming home to these crazy fires we're dealing with here in Northern California right now, but otherwise I can't complain. Yeah, how have those fires been? You're you've been you're you're really only like 45 minutes from them, aren't you? Yeah, we're 45 minutes from where the worst of them are. Um so we're not necessarily in danger of being in close contact with those fires themselves, but the smoke damage and air quality have been uh, have been pretty bad. Like we've had ash falling at our house um, from the fires, and the the air quality has been like unhealthy to the point where last week I had to get a I had to get a three day gym pass um, and go use the treadmill because you could not run outside. It was it was that hazardous. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's just a really tricky situation. And I have a, a bunch of runners out in California who are, who are dealing with just the effects on their running too. So it's yep. it's hard with that kind of air pollution. We're just not used to that here in the US in this day and age. No, we're not. And it's what's really interesting. I mean, I've had I have a lot of local athletes that I coach and every day I'm getting text messages or calls or emails from them being like, um, I don't think I should go out and do my workout today. How do I adjust? And it's been 
you know, it's been a little bit of a fire drill, no pun intended, to, you know, to, to make sure everyone can, like, you know, still get their work in, but, you know, also not compromise their health. And it's, uh, yeah, not, I don't think anyone really knows how to deal with it, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough spot to be in. I mean, at what point is your training run actually worse for your health than just <laughs> staying inside and sitting on the couch all day? Right, exactly. All right, so today we are tackling all manner of interesting, weird, and <laughs> tough running questions. I have sure. crowdsourced these from all different locations, Facebook, Twitter, email, and other okay. locations. So uh, this actual episode is entirely reader and listener uh, driven. So these are not questions that I've come up with at all. I have seven of them. And I always think it's it's really helpful for, instead of me just kind of giving my answer, I, I like to have another person on and we can kind of riff on the topic a little bit and, and go from there. So let's dive in with our first question. And we're not going to do these in any kind of order. We're just going to take them as they were submitted. And uh, this one is about pacing or really how to know how fast you're running. So this particular runner asks, my 5K PR tells me that my easy pace is between eight and nine minutes per mile, but heart rate guidance says that my easy pace should be 945 to 1030 per mile. And the question is, is pace, heart rate, or simply running by feel the best way to judge what your easy pace actually is? What do you think, Mario? That's a, that's a great question and something that I've been, um, you know, playing around with with my own athletes of late. Um, I don't use heart rate training. I never really have. But if you look at any number of equivalency charts, they'll say if you can run a 5K in X amount of time, then your easy pace should be this. And what I've found is that, um, you know, on easy days, you've got to think about what's the purpose of the run. And usually the purpose of that run is is recovery, um, recovering from your last tough workout or your race and really trying to ready yourself for your next big effort. Um, and that's the that's the physical part of it. But I also look at the kind of the mental side of it, too. Um, you know, when you're racing and you're doing hard work workouts, you've got to concentrate um, to hit your splits um, to you know, to push yourself really hard. It takes a lot of focus. So on the, those easy days, I like to remove that. Um, and I found that if I've given people hard paces on their easy days, like you must run 8.45 to 9 minutes a mile, um, then they're spending the entire run looking at their watch, making sure that they're not running 8.30s or 9.15s, that they're right in that range. And, you know, what that does is it, you know, it wastes a lot of mental energy. Um, and then we're defeating the purpose of, of the run. So I've kind of gotten away from hard metrics on easy days. I tell people, you know, you should go out at, at a pace that feels easy and then back off one or two notches just to make sure. Um, and it really shouldn't be anything that you're, you know, that you're thinking about. The, the question you should be asking yourself is, am I, am I working hard right now or am I truly running easy? Uh, and if it feels like you're working harder than you should be, you've got to back it off a bit more. And what that helps you to do is develop a better internal sense of, of feel, which is, you know, which is going to take that mental load off um, that I talked about a minute or two ago. Um, but it's also just going to make your easy runs that much more productive and you're, and you're going to be more in tune with your body that way. I'm really glad that you talked about the mental side of an, an easy day or a recovery day, because I, I don't think that's talked about enough. You know, the real purpose of an easy day is obviously 
an easy effort. Let's recover. You know, let's get some extra miles on our feet. But really, you know, we're saving our effort for the, for the harder day. And I think one of the things that we're learning now is that stress is stress. It doesn't really matter if it's mm -hmm. from your crappy boss or your terrible relationship or the long run that you're doing this weekend. And when we're adding a lot of stress on top of our training, and that does include staring your watch every 200 meters on a recovery run, trying to get in that narrow pace range that you think you should be in, that is not really serving the purpose of that run. And I think runners are best served by really thinking to the actual point of the run, you know, what is its purpose, and then going from there. So, you know, I like to run by feel when it's more important to go easy, to run a recovery effort, and really just to make sure that, you know, if the point is easy, well, easy is a feeling. It is not a pace. It is not a heart rate zone. It is a feeling. Exactly. So I want runners to be focusing on running by feel when they're doing an easy run. Now, of course, I'm, I'm probably going to give you a pace range, but I always tell my runners that it's super flexible. And, you know, if you're going to veer off that pace range, especially on the slower end, then I don't really care at all. Now, if you're rocking a long run and you go slightly under that easy pace at the very end for the last mile or two, you know, no big deal. But I think, you know, when, when the purpose of the run is recovery, and, and truly running at an easy effort, we need to uh, make sure that that runner is really focusing on running by feel. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to pace, I like to run pace when pace is the goal. And the pace is the goal when you're running a structured, faster workout. You know, exactly. any runner who's training for a uh, race, you know, presumably they have a time goal. You know, they want to run, say, 20 minutes in the 5K. Well, you know, that's a certain pace per mile. So pace is an important component to your training for some of your training sessions. And so when you're on the track, when you're uh, doing a workout on the road, that's when it's much better to focus on pace. But, you know, since this question was primarily about easy pace, it sounds like we're both in agreement that running by feel for those runs is kind of the preferred way to do it. Exactly. And, and what I'll do as a coach when I'm monitoring my athletes training and athletes can do this themselves if they're self-coached um, or even just to identify patterns in their own training. I look at, you know, I try not to look at any one day because we all have good days and we all have bad days, but I'll look at a string of workouts and races. And if I start to notice that an athlete is having a lot of bad workouts in a row or they're just continually feeling um, overly fatigued they're struggling to hit specific paces in workouts, their race times are plummeting, then I'll start taking a closer look at their easy days and seeing how fast they're going relative to the race time that they're trying to run. And if it looks, you know, if it looks too close to me as, as a coach, if it is out of that, you know, th there are those pace ranges um, that we can all look at. But if it, if it just looks a little too fast relative to the race times that they're putting up, that's when I'll go in and make an adjustment and say, hey, we really need to slow your easy runs down because you are clearly not absorbing the training. And that is when I'll give a range because those are the athletes that really need a bit more guidance. But I've had a lot of success having my, my athletes just not worry too, too much about the pace of their runs. But as you said, focusing on that feeling of is this easy or is this not? And if it's not, then I need to back it off appropriately so that I'm achieving the goal of this workout. Yeah, that's a great point. And another thing that I'll add and kind of piggyback on what you're saying, Mario, was, 
you know, there was some interesting data that Strava published recently, and they were looking at the difference in training between runners who ran Boston qualifying marathon times and those runners who did not. And it was very clear that those runners who ran Boston qualifying times ran significantly slower than their marathon pace for their easy runs. And Mm -hmm. the runners who have not qualified for Boston are running much closer to their marathon pace on their easy runs. And, And I think it's an important point that highlights just how valuable easy runs are. You know, if you're pushing the effort on your long runs, if you're you know, doing challenging workouts during the week, you need those easy days. It is so important to recover on those days so that you can work really hard during those priority workouts. And I think it's just such a great example of the importance of backing off when the point is to back off so that you can save yourself for those more challenging days. And ultimately, that's what that's what makes us, um, you know, race faster is is you know, that stress and response cycle. And, you know, the stress has to be strong enough to elicit the response that you want. And, you know, a lot of runners, I think, fall into that gray zone where they're just, you know, their workouts are a little bit too slow, their easy runs are too fast, and everything congeals along this kind of, you know, average or or, or median pace that they're always running. And that's not the way to get faster. I think by polarizing your training a little bit more, then you'll have uh, a lot more success. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll add is most motivated runners, and that can be a new runner who is just getting started and they're motivated to get out the door a little bit more, maybe finish that first 5K, all the way to your Boston qualifiers and elites and semi-elites and such. Um, don't have a hard time pushing. <laughs> they, you know, when Their default is, when in doubt, I'm going to push a little bit harder. So as, as coaches and as maturing athletes, learning when to back off and realizing the importance of running easy is a lot of times that you know that that silver bullet um that you know is going to be the key to to breaking through to the next level um and actually getting faster not actually pushing harder every day yeah it's funny how faster runners i i think are are much more capable of hammering the pace almost every day but for some reason, you know, when I was training in college, you know, we were both in college at about the same time, Mario, you know, most of my teammates didn't want to hammer most of the time, even though they were fully capable of it. They wanted to slow down because, you know, they knew how those track workouts were so incredibly difficult and, you know, racing is obviously so hard and they didn't want to work hard every day. You know, yeah, granted, they were running 12, 13, 14 miles just on an easy run, but it was easy and they're yep. not really pushing themselves uh, at a level that you know a recreational runner might. Yep, you've gotta pick your spots. There you go. Okay, let's move on to our second question. Um, so this is on training surface. What do you recommend for a ratio of training on the street versus training on the treadmill? And, and here's some context for this question. Um, <clears throat> this particular runner says, almost all of my training runs are done on the treadmill at the gym, except for the weekend long runs where you know she runs outside. But for speed training, it's just easier to run a targeted pace on the treadmill and just try to keep up with it. What do you think about splitting up your time versus the roads versus the treadmill, particularly for the runner who's training for a race? I think it's situation dependent. And what I mean by that is as busy, non-elite runners who have families and have jobs, sometimes our only option is the treadmill. And in those cases, um, you take what you can get and you make the best of it. 
but in an ideal world, if you've got some flexibility, I think there needs to be a good balance, especially if you're training for a race. If you're training for a race, the race is going to happen outside on a course that is has some variety to it. It's going to have some hills, we'll have some flats, have some turns. Um, it, it's you know, it's you're out in the wild, and you've got to you've got to prepare for that. So while you're on a treadmill and you can simulate uh, you can simulate some of that, and you can certainly lock into a pace. There's no better preparation for you know, racing outdoors than, than getting outdoors and simulating some of your workouts in, in that type of environment. And as we had talked about with easy runs, learning what an effort feels like um, rather than just having the treadmill tell you how fast you're going. So I think for newer runners, um, in the beginning, it can be really helpful to get on a treadmill and understand what, say, seven minute per mile pace feels like, what that effort feels like on a treadmill. Keeping in mind, too, it could feel very different on a treadmill than it does outside, but it gives you a small taste of it. And then you can go outside and do that same thing and see how those efforts compare. So I think there needs to be a good balance in there. Um, and from just a pure, you know, from a pure um, variety standpoint, I'm a big believer in variety just for um, for preventing injuries. I think if you're running especially on a treadmill, the same, you know, in the same environment all the time, same foot strike, even if you're running at different paces, you're really stressing your body in the same way every time you're on there. Uh, and then when you do step outside, it's almost a huge shock to your system. And that is when you can be really susceptible to injury. So I think for the purpose of staying healthy, you want to have a good balance of surfaces and environments in your training. Yeah, you said something really interesting that I want to hit on, which was, you know, you kind of have to go out in the wild, or in other words, go outside and do your training, because that's where the races are. You know, you're not running your race on the treadmill, presumably. So it's important to get in some training on the same surface that you're going to do your racing on. You know, I think it's helpful to think of, you know, don't be a fish doing all your training in an aquarium and then hope to do well out in the ocean. You know, exactly. You really have to make sure that your body is used to the rigors of uh, training out on the same surface. And then the other thing that I'll add about this kind of topic is, you know, for this particular question and for this runner, you know, she said, I find it easier to set my targeted pace on the treadmill and just try to keep up with it. You know, that's really helpful when you're a beginner, but, you know, as you even just get a couple months into your journey as a runner, it gets important to make sure that you can do those paces on other surfaces too. Can you do that? You know, can you hit, you know, whatever your pace might be, eight minutes a mile, seven minutes a mile, whatever it is, um, you need to be able to hit that by yourself without the aid of a treadmill. And I think when you rely on the treadmill too much, you know, you're like, oh, great, I can do all my workouts, you know, at eight minute pace, that's my 5k goal pace. But then, you know, when I went out for my race, what happened? I, I could only manage 830 per mile. Well, why is that? You know, I think there's a lot of reasons why I think running outside is fundamentally different than running on a treadmill, your biomechanics are different, you're landing on a stable surface rather than a moving surface. There's a lot of things that go into it. And, you know, uh, you know, you talked a lot about the injury prevention benefits of getting off the treadmill. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of talking about the more performance benefits sure. of getting off the treadmill. Um, but I, I think both are just as important. And, you know, when you think about it, running injuries are really repetitive stress injuries. So whatever we can do to reduce repetition in our training is going to be a good thing. That's going to help us avoid that 
excessive repetition and really help ourselves stay healthy long term. And I think the treadmill is probably the most uniform surface that you can run on. It's probably more uniform than a concrete sidewalk because even in a concrete sidewalk, uh, there's going to be some of those stones that, that aren't perfectly smooth and you're going to come to a curb or, you know, uh, you have to cross a road at a certain point. And, you know, so for the runner doing all their running on the treadmill, it's incredibly repetitive, monotonous. Like you said, Mario, the same foot strike. It To me, it's a big red flag for injuries. And it's also a situation where your training is not very specific to the goals, which the goals are let's run a fast race. So, you know, if you want to run a fast race, let's practice on the course. And you're simply not doing that if you're on the treadmill. Exactly. And the last thing I'll add, uh, bringing the mental component back into it, is you have to be a lot more engaged when you're running outside, whether you're running easy or you are doing a workout or racing. Because as you said, when you're on the treadmill, you can lock into eight-minute pace. And if you don't run eight-minute pace, you're just going to get spit off the back. And that's how you know you're not able to hold on anymore. But outdoors, you've got to really focus a lot harder to hold that pace. And and that's, you know, that's the reality of, of racing and, and the reality of, of running in a fun challenge. And um, you've got to be up for that challenge. I think some people get scared of that. They, they wonder what's going to happen if I go outside and I can't hold on. Well, you've got to go out and find out and, um, and see what that's like and, and learn how to make the right adjustments when you're out there trying to hit your target pace. Yes, exactly. The, see, the, this is why I wanted you on, Mario. You're thinking of things that I am not. I think the, the mental side of things is, is just as important as the physical. You know, just like you said, the treadmill is easier to hit your splits on. But do we always want easier? Is the goal to make your training easier? I say that it's not. You know, sometimes we want to put ourselves into situations that are very challenging. And if you don't, then, you know, you're inevitably going to be in a very challenging situation and you simply won't have the tools to adjust on the fly, recalibrate and, you know, still have a good race. Uh, I love giving you loaded questions with no context, Mario. So how about this one? Uh, I'm training for my first marathon. Should I train to finish or go after my goal, which is to qualify for Boston? That is a loaded question. I like it. Um, I would say the first thing I would say is let's re-examine how we're looking at our our goals. I, regardless of whether it's a marathon, a five k, something in between, um, I like to have a number of goals for each race, especially if it's a distance that you're tackling for the first time. So, in the case of this runner, I think the A goal would be to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And not knowing anything about this runner's background and if that's even a realistic possibility at this point in their running career, let's assume that it is, um, that would be the the A goal. If they hit that, they've gotten everything that they wanted out of the race. Um, but of course, especially with the marathon, it's such a long race. Um, you could show up on race day and the conditions could be miserable. You could be sick. Uh, you may have had some hiccups in your training cycle. You've got to have these tiered goals. So that A goal can be, let's qualify for the Boston Marathon. And then a B goal might be, um, and this is a, a first timer, so they don't have a, a previous personal best. Uh, a B goal could be um, a time that might not be a, a Boston Marathon qualifier, but would still be a really solid marathon time, first time out, based on their previous races. But somewhere in there, and I think the the baseline goal should be to finish. Um, 
because whether it goes well or whether it doesn't, you're going to learn something from this race. Uh, but you're going to learn a lot more if you cross the finish line, um, whether, whether it went well or not, than, than if you didn't. I think there are too many first-time marathoners who take that for granted, um, the whole finishing aspect of it, because you're going to hit points of that race, especially if it's not going well, where you're questioning whether or not you can run another step, um, no matter how good of a, a runner you are at other distances. So I think it's important not to lose sight of that of that finishing goal, um, because if you know, in the case of this runner, if they if they finish in a Boston Marathon qualifying time or not, they're going to learn something that is going to benefit them the next time out. And I really look at training and racing as a process and you know, that's going to be the most important thing that they take away from this, not just that qualifying time. But hopefully, hopefully they can nail it that first time out and, and get that qualifying time. That would be great, too. Yeah, I think a lot of runners don't appreciate just how difficult the marathon is. And today, everyone's doing marathons, you know, like half a million people do marathons every year. And if you watch a marathon, you'll see all sizes and shapes and and types of runners out there on the course and it just goes to show that you know you have some runners at the front who you know look like your stereotypical runner and then you have runners who don't look like your stereotypical runner and that's fine and you know i think either way uh you have to appreciate the marathon and you have to appreciate every finish as a uh, goal accomplished because running 26.2 miles in a single run is something that i think everyone should be pretty proud of yeah, um, and it's cliche, but you have to respect it. You have to respect the the distance and just how how hard it is, and how many factors are involved that you don't typically deal with, even in a half marathon. From a from a pacing standpoint, from a fueling standpoint, um, all of those all of those things. It just it's compounded so much more in the marathon. And I think until you go through that, um, to your point, you really don't have an appreciation for how difficult that can really be. Right. I think it's helpful to think of the marathon as an event whose difficulty does not scale linearly. So it's almost like a more exponential growth curve of difficulty compared with the shorter races, because now you're dealing with fueling issues, which you don't deal with in races that are shorter than about 20 miles or so. Uh, and then there's a lot of different things that are, are going on uh, just because of the sheer distance of the race. And I run into this problem all the time with runners who are really not respecting the distance and the sheer difficulty of it. You know, they want to get ready for a marathon in 20 weeks when their you know, current weekly mileage is like 10 miles. You're just not appreciating how hard a marathon is. And, um, you know, let's get back to the specific question. Um, you know, the way that I would answer this is, you know, let's look at some equivalent performances. I've really been getting into equivalent performances lately to help runners with their race goals. And an equivalent performance is, is very simply, you know, if you run one time in a 5K, what is a rough equivalent performance or finishing time in another race? So, for example, if you are a 30-minute 5K runner, you're probably not going to just go out and run a three-hour marathon. Uh, and then on the flip side, you know, if you're a 230 marathoner, uh, you're probably not going to go race a 5K in 28 minutes. Just because one of those races really shows what you're capable of physically. And then, you know, fitness is fitness, running is running. That translates really well to performances at other race distances. And so for this runner, I would say, do you have any other races, even as short as a 5k that indicate you're in the ballpark of qualifying for Boston? If that's true, right. then I think, 
you know, let's go for it. You know, the first let's, let's really prioritize having a great training cycle because you're never going to have a great marathon, qualify for Boston. If you don't first prioritize the training itself. Um, and then I, I think they can go from there. You know, I, I don't think, um, you know, this is kind of the other side to the coin of respecting the marathon and, you know, really appreciating how difficult it is. Um, you know, and I'll use myself as an example. I never had the goal to, to finish a marathon. I it was always time oriented. And that's just part of, you know, who I am as a runner and, you know, my specific interests for, for my own running. But I think it, it talks to the point of if you are a runner that has run certain times in shorter races, you should be confident in running a rough equivalent time in the marathon, provided that you do the work. So, you know, if, if this runner is capable of qualifying for Boston, my first thought is let, let's try for that goal then, you know, and, and I definitely agree that there should be tiered goals, but I, I also think that this person's a goal should definitely be to go for that BQ to try to get that qualifying time, because if they do have those equivalent performances, then it's a valid goal. And if they didn't go after it, I, I think that they would be shortchanging themselves. Yeah, I I think that's a that's a good point. And as a as a coach, that's something I look at as well. But the flip side of the coin is you also have to be realistic. So I have athletes come to me all the time, and they say my my goal, my a goal is to is to qualify for the Boston Marathon or it's to qualify for the Olympic Trials, whatever whatever it may be. And if I don't know that runner. Um, that's the first step for me as a coach is get to know them a little bit more, see what they've run. And as you said, see if they're, see if they're being realistic, see if it's in the ballpark or if, even if it's not at that very point in time with, you know, as we dig deeper into their training history and how they've progressed as an athlete, um, could it be with a little bit more work? Um, do we need to take a longer term approach? So, um, you know, I think we're on the same page there, but I also think it's, you know, it's important whether it's, whether it's yourself as an athlete, um, or you're, a coach working with an athlete is just is being realistic with them about what you know what's possible in that moment and what might be possible a year down the road two years down the road whatever it whatever it may be do you think that this issue is kind of speaking to the issue of workload or or mileage or volume so you know for example if there's a runner whose 5k time is really fast but, you know, they're the type of runner who can run fast off, you know, run a fast 5K on 15 miles per week. They've mm -hmm. never run more than 20 miles a week. They've never run longer than seven, eight miles for their long run. Do you think that's the situation where you might say, look, your 5K time is an equivalent performance of a Boston qualifying marathon, but you haven't done the volume. You haven't developed, you know, your endurance, your aerobic metabolism enough that you can run a great marathon off of simply, you know, 12, 16 weeks of training. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in those situations, you can see that the athlete clearly has the ability. Uh, they just don't have the background yet or the foundation um, when it comes to translating that ability to a longer race performance. I think that's perfect. I think the the concept of ability versus background and background can also be kind of looked at as, you know, your your lifetime body of work in terms yeah. of running. Uh, those are two very distinct things. You might have the ability to run a great race, but you don't have the background to do it yet. You know, you just need to do the work. So I, I love that distinction, Mario. 
Okay, let's uh, let's continue on with the marathon and talk more about marathon long runs. And this is the classic question. I probably get this at least once a week. Is 16 miles sufficient or should marathoners in training go for 20 miles? Uh, let me let me start with this one. Sure. Uh, I think that runners who are performance minded, so they want to run a certain time in the marathon, not just finish it. Uh, I do think most runners should get up to about 20 miles for their long run. You know, more competitive runners might get up to 21 or 22 miles. If you're not quite as competitive, you know, maybe maybe more like 19 miles. But I do think there's something to be said about running 20 miles, uh, not just physically, but also mentally getting the confidence in of running a double digit run that begins with a two. You know, I think that's important. Um, and then the other side to this coin is that, you know, these long runs are important, but they're also important in context. So what are you doing the rest of the week? You know, I think a lot of people who are running the short long runs are structuring their week in a way so that when they start that shorter long run, they're pretty tired already. So maybe they did a workout the day before, maybe they did, you know, uh, not quite a long run, but a decent base run the day before. And, you know, those factors make that shorter long run a little bit more effective. If you're not going into your long run fatigued or, you know, kind of already tired from the week's work, you know, it makes sense to go a little bit longer, just a couple miles to make sure that you get your time on feet. Uh, And then the other side to this issue, I think, is how much time it takes you to run the long run. You know, if, if you're a fast marathoner and you're doing kind of, uh, you know, some quality work within your long run, you could easily run 22 miles in less than two and a half hours. That's, you know, totally possible. Uh, but a lot of runners, you know, two, 20 miles might actually take them, uh, you know, three and a half or four hours. And so I think it's important to determine which runner you are and then, you know, make, make sure that you're not running too long in terms of time. You know, I like to say runners really shouldn't go beyond about three, three and a half hours for their long run um, or 20 miles, whichever comes first. And I think that uh, makes sure that they're not setting themselves up for an injury. Uh, but then at the same time, they're still getting, you know, most of the benefits of, of you know, a, a decent long run. Um, and they're really preparing themselves for the marathon distance. I also get this question quite a bit, and I think we're pretty aligned on our answers to it. My my, my most common answer to, to this question in general, before I, I start going down the rabbit holes, it depends, and, and that's my answer to a lot of a lot of training questions. But I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think it, it depends on um, you know what your what your time goal is. Like if you're if you're a two and a half or three hour marathoner, what does that mean for your long run? Obviously, and if you're a two and a half hour marathoner. Um, a, in most cases, a three and a half hour long run is not necessary. Um, you know, there, there can be arguments made to the contrary, but in most cases, not the case. If you're a six hour marathoner, you know, should you be out there doing five or six hour long runs every week? And I say, I say no to that as well. And I, I like what you said, and I use this quite a bit as well. And, and again, depends on the athlete, but I'll say 18 miles or three hours, whichever comes first. Um, 20 miles or three and a half hours, whichever comes first. Um, because I think, especially for newer marathoners or for those whose goal is really just to, to finish and they, uh, you know, they're not necessarily performance oriented and that they're trying to hit a, a qualifying time of some sort and they're going to be out there longer. Um, you know, just building up that amount of time on your feet, 
can be really beneficial, but also there there is a point, and, and it usually is around that three, three and a half hour mark where um, the, the benefits start regressing a bit. Um, your form starts to break, uh, you have to walk a lot more, um, you're out of fuel, whatever it may be, and then you're not really, I mean, what are you getting out of it at that point? So, you know, I think for marathoners, I always view the long run as that is your key workout for the week, or it should be one of one of your key workouts for the week. So what are we trying to, to get out of it? For performance-minded runners, a lot of times there is going to be some faster running involved, race pace, sometimes intervals that are a little bit faster than race pace. You know, we're, tr- we're really trying to develop that. And for, for newer runners or just finished runners, it's building up that amount of time on their feet because they're not used to that. Um, and just and just learning what it's like to be out there for over, you know, for over two and a half hours, over three three hours, and you know what fueling needs are involved there, um, how they, you know, how they adapt depending on how their body's responding, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Let me ask you a variation on this question, and I know what my answer is. My answer is sometimes uh, considered controversial. I know I've gotten pushback from it in the past, but. For those runners who are running marathons in, say, six hours or more, how do you get them to do a long run that is going to prepare them to be on their feet for that long, um, but still kind of abide by these rules that we're talking about that, you know, you shouldn't run for more than about three and a half hours, your form deteriorates, the injury risk uh, skyrockets. How do you how do you train someone who's going to run that kind of a time in the marathon while not having them run too long in their mar- in their long runs? I've I've got to be upfront and say that I have not coached many marathoners and nothing against these marathoners at all. It's just not the type of athlete I typically work with um, who are running much over or four hours. So that's not necessarily my area of of expertise. Um, but typically. A lot of times with those runners, there there are there is quite a bit of walking involved if it's just finished type thing. So you know their long runs, they may not be running for three and a half hours straight. There's probably you know a bit of walking involved. So I think if if they're getting into a pattern of you know say running two minutes, walking a minute, um, either gradually extending that out um, to the point where they're comfortable around three hours and they feel confident that if they continue with that approach that they can go even longer. Or depending on how long, you know, their their walk breaks are, um, shortening those up so that they're running more and walking less, and that's going to help push their, I think, their fitness and their confidence forward. So I think that's the way that I would go about it. But to be completely candid, it's not a situation I run into all that often with the types of athletes that I'm working with. Right. And admittedly, I I don't really work with runners who are running those kinds of times either. But, you know, my my position on this and and I've gotten a little pushback from it is that if you're running six hours or more in the marathon, I don't think you should be running marathons. Uh, I think you should be focusing on shorter race distances, working on, um, you know, building up your capacity for running more mileage. I think you should be doing more speed work and, you know, really focusing on speed and power and good technique and proper running form. And, you know, once you've built up some proficiency in the shorter distances, you're just going to be so much more competent at the longer distances. You're not going to have to walk as much. You're not going to have to uh, be out on the course for so many extra hours. And that's just the 
the approach that I like to see runners take because I know how hard the marathon is. And, you know, when you're out there for six plus hours, it's just a lot of wear and tear on the body. And so I like to see runners take a more, more of a strategic approach so that they're really kind of focusing on the fundamentals before doing an event that I don't think they're truly prepared to complete just yet. Yeah. And I think that's a good principle to keep in mind, regardless of the type of of runner that you are, is focus on those fundamentals and nail those first and let everything sort of grow from there. Perfect. All right. Let's discuss a potential uh, myth or or something that runners might believe that isn't necessarily true. Uh, Here's a question that is, I'm 52 years old. My doctor told me I should only run five days per week. Is there any truth to the idea that the number of days you run per week should be based on your age? I think that's a I think that's a myth. Um, in general, I don't think there's a magic number of days that every runner should be running, but it's going to depend on your goals, your background, uh, your injury history, all that. I you know that said, I am a I am a big believer in frequency. Um, whether you're a newer runner or you're someone who's experienced, I, I try to get my athletes wherever their starting point is, um, generally to try to get out the door more often, especially if they're only running two or three days a week, because I think that frequency is important for, um, preventing injuries. I think it helps spur better adaptation. Um, and it's just going to help you become a, a better runner. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, these runs are all super long, either but i think there's you know i think there can be a lot of benefit in just going out for you know 20 minutes on an in-between day uh and that can be your fifth day of of running for the week so i don't i I guess in this specific case i don't think five days is is too many and i don't think just because this person has five decades of life that that means they can run five days a week and you know so so should a 70 year old run seven days a week or do you scale it down to three (laughs) um you know, so there is definitely no, you know, uh, I think that's just a coincidence. I don't think there's any, there's any age formula as far as how many days a week you, you know, you should be, you should be running. But I think you've got to evaluate how many days you are running and be honest with yourself. Should I be running a little bit less? Is this, you know, fifth or sixth or seventh day not doing me any good? Or could I, benefit from adding a, a fourth fifth sixth or or seventh day am i not just because i'm you know i'm i'm scared or i really don't have a good excuse but i think generally um regardless of your age um frequency is a, is a good thing the body craves consistency um it craves routine and i think the the better routines that you can develop the better habits that you can develop the better your running is going to be I like that you mentioned habits, and I think for any runner who's trying to become more consistent, the frequency with which you run is really important for developing that consistent running habit. Now, for this particular runner, you know, he's 52 years old. His doctor told me, you know, he should only be running five days per week. He's presumably been running for a while at this point, especially if he's, you know, over 50 and running five days per week. I will totally agree with you. There absolutely is no magic number of days that you should be running. This doctor could have easily said three days per week or, you know, six days per week and, and use the argument that, well, you're getting, you need a day off. You're over 50. It's important. And, and I think, you know, we kind of get into this scenario where 
it it entirely depends it really depends on your own you know goals and you know what you physically need with your training at this point in your life um, but you know in in terms of the number of days that you run based on your age i don't think there's there's really any any truth to that um, you know i I know a lot of runners who are 70 plus who run every day. And I know a lot of runners who are 20 that can only run two or three days per week. So it's certainly not age dependent. All right, let's let's do one more question, Mario. This is an interesting one. Uh, I think a lot of runners, especially older runners, you know, they have other things going on in their lives. And, and we all do. But this particular runner is a tennis player in addition to a runner. And... Uh, you know, their their goal is to play tennis once per week, but that almost certainly means that they'd have to sacrifice a day of running. And so with most plans, you know, having four, five, six days of running per week, uh, this person's question is, are activities like tennis an appropriate substitute for one of the weekly runs? And if so, which one? What do you think? It's a good question. Um, first, I look at the, the demands of, of both. Um, obviously, the demands of tennis which there's a lot of lateral movement involved, um, you know, quick starts and stops. Uh, the impact, I guess, on, on your body from those quick starts and stops is a lot different than, than running. It, it's fundamentally a, a different activity, but I think it's beneficial because it's also, you know, you're using more of your body. So I think you're, you know, you are supplementing your running in a, in a positive way in some regards because you're, you know, even though you're you're kind of tearing your body down in a different way, it's also becoming stronger, and and just that well-roundedness is going to translate well to your running. And it's also depending on how much tennis this person is is playing. You know, if they're playing for a couple hours, even just one day a week, that can be an exhausting activity, and and certainly needs its own form of of recovery. So, you know, I think it can work. I think it depends where they insert it into their week and and how hard they're playing tennis and what effect that's going to have on their running. But let's just assume that you know, they're, they're playing hard tennis. Uh, you know, they, they're working up a good sweat. They're getting in a good workout one day a week. Um, you know, I'd, I'd want that runner to, or, you know, they are a runner. Um, I'd want that runner to, to make sure that they're not overdoing it on that day. Um, maybe that's a day that they don't run and maybe even the next day they either don't run or they, they take a short recovery run, um, before they get into their next serious, running workout but i think it i think it can work but i think you just have to be honest with yourself about about how hard you're working how much it's taking out of you and and what kind of recovery is is involved and i mean it's risky as as well um there are certainly risks involved in in playing tennis but if it's something that you love to do um i you know i I never want to discourage someone from from not doing something that they you know that they enjoy but i think just being mindful about the toll that it takes on your body and how it fits into your overall week is is important to is important to keep in mind sure and for me the way i look at this is i look at you know what what is a a game of tennis or or even an hour or two of tennis going to do to your body you know what what is a similar running stimulus to a game of tennis and it sounds like it would you know, it would be an interval workout. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're you're kind of sprinting back and forth on the court. Uh, you're getting some recovery, but it's sustained. It's it's certainly much more difficult than an easy run. So, when I look at what run could I substitute for tennis, uh, I wouldn't want to substitute a recovery run for you know right. some tennis because the purpose of a recovery run is to aid the recovery process. You know, we talked a lot about this at the very beginning and, and how, you know, we really should be running very, very easy. 
tennis is not very, very easy. So it's not a, a, a comparable type of exercise. I think we're comparing apples and oranges. If you were like, oh, I'm going to skip my, you know, four mile recovery run on Friday and play tennis instead. And then at the same time, I'm wondering why I feel so bad for my long runs on Saturday. Uh, I think, I think that's why. Um, Then the other side of it is like, how would you schedule it? I really like your idea of doing tennis or, or really any sport similar to it. You know, we could talk about basketball, talk about soccer, uh, anything like that. Let's do that on a day that we're not doing any running and let's have the next day be either off or uh, a very easy run, you know, almost like a recovery run from your tennis game, just like you might run a recovery run after, you know, a hard workout the day before. And this is going to help with recovery. It's also going to reduce your injury risk because, you know, you're not playing tennis one day and then doing a long run the next day or doing a faster workout the next day. So we're not condensing too much intensity into too short of a time period. And, and I think that's what runners who try to balance multiple sports often um, make the mistake of doing. So they'll do, you know, they'll have their, uh, you know, faster workout. And then the next day they'll play a game of soccer. And then the next day they're doing a long run. And then the next day they're hurt and they wonder why. Well, there was a lot of quality condensed into that couple days. And I think when runners are, are trying to, you know, include tennis or, or another sport like this, that is very uh, ballistic, stop and go. There's a lot of lateral movement. These kinds of sports are, for runners, I think, a big injury risk because, you know, like you said, you're, you know, you're kind of beating yourself up. But at the same time, you're working your body in a very different way than running. You know, I think there's value to that, but I think we all should... We also should be strategic in how we stress our bodies. And, you know, for me, I would rather the runner not play tennis. If the runner's going to play tennis, you know, let's find the most strategic way to put it in the schedule. But, right. you know, if you do, you know, if you rock a long run one day and then go play tennis the next day and you're trying to sprint laterally and you're stopping and starting, the risk of, of pulling a muscle or... It's or, huge. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're already very fatigued from the running that you're doing, why would you go then play a a very kind of plyometric sport like tennis and just spike your injury risk like crazy? To me as a coach, I see like kind of a big red flag. Um, but as I think as long as you know you're you're making sure that the tennis game isn't super intense, uh, you're not working too hard the day of or the day after the tennis game, then you know you're probably in the clear, but at the same time, I wouldn't say it's the best way to train. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And I, and I don't deal with these types of situations often with, you know, very motivated, competitive runners, but they do come up from time to time. And, and usually in those cases, you know, I'm with you. My, my preference would be that you don't do it. Um, I remember being in college, our, you know, our coach did not want us playing intramural soccer, or intramural basketball, because um, the injury risk was a lot higher um, and almost like, um, antithetical to what we're doing as you know as competitive running athletes um so you de- you definitely have to be careful and just realizing the demands of it you know it's you know something like tennis is primarily much more fast twitch and very ballistic as you said almost similar to an interval workout whether it's like sh- you know very short sprints where you jack your heart rate up for a, a very short amount of time and you get a short recovery and a lot of stress on the achilles tendons and the knees and um, and even some things that running just doesn't stress. And yeah, you've got to recover after that and just kind of be careful where it falls, you know, in the week and, and what you're doing going into it. And, you know, again, how hard you're, you know, how hard you're playing. 
I love it. All right, Mario, there we have all of our questions for our Q&A podcast today. Um, thanks so much for being here and sharing your expertise. I always love talking with you. You have such a, I think, a good head on your shoulders. You know, you really have a kind of a logical look at, at running and training, and I really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, likewise. I, I enjoy our conversations. I think it's just important to to not overthink things and to just be very pragmatic with a lot of the decisions that you make. Common sense can go a long way. Unfortunately, it's not all that common. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And, you know, just after talking with you for the last 50 minutes or so, uh, you know, I think it's impressed upon me the fact that runners do better when they have an experienced runner or a coach just to bounce questions off of or ideas off of, um, you know, any kind of problems they're having. So if you're listening to this and you don't have a support group or a coach or just some other runners around you who know what they're talking about, then, you know, try to find that community. Because I think when we can make better training decisions, when we could be more strategic with how we're running, then we're just going to become better runners. We're going to become faster runners. And I think we're going to get injured a lot less in the process. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's what makes running a lot more fun. I agree with that. All right. I hope you enjoyed hearing two runners and coaches talk about the intricacies of training and the many factors that you have to balance when you're making training decisions. And, you know, the real goal here with not just the podcast, but strengthrunning.com is helping you build on your knowledge of the sport so that you can make better training decisions that lead to smarter training and then faster racing. And if you do happen to struggle with lower leg or foot injuries and you can't seem to stay healthy for more than a month or two, I do recommend the AFX. It's used by elite athletes and has a lot of PhDs and top coaches on board, and I own it myself, actually. So I want to hook you up. Use code STRENGTHRUN, no space, all caps, to get 10% off at checkout. One more time, the code is STRENGTHRUN, and you can use that at afx hyphen online.com. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And don't forget to get in touch on social so I can help you with any questions you might have about your running.